0: China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS. And this week, I'm joined by Jason Wu, an Assistant Professor of Political Science at Indiana University Bloomington. Today, we'll be discussing Jason's new paper, Categorical Confusion, Ideological Labels in China. Jason, thanks for joining the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Jude.
0: A first biographical question, and I will note at the outset that you and I were both fortunate enough to to overlap at the University of California, San Diego, where you were doing your PhD at the time. But you've now done a lot of work on this issue of the role ideology plays in China and ideological beliefs of Chinese citizens. So I wanted to ask, how did you come to focus on this topic? What are the outstanding questions that are driving you as you continue to work on this?
1: I mean, I started out back in graduate school thinking about how the government managed the propaganda system and how it was able to get ordinary citizens to follow along or at least not make too much trouble. After a while, I realized that I was more interested in the public side of this, you know, what ordinary citizens were actually thinking than the sort of institutional side of it. Although, you know, the Propaganda department and how it works is still really fascinating, but then from like an academic point of view, um, I was actually in this class on American political behavior and was organized around these really central questions in public opinion research in the U.S. Like, you know, what are the values of American citizens? Do American citizens have some kind of coherent belief structure that we would call ideology? How informed are they, and uh, how how do they make voting decisions? And I started to think about you know, how many of these questions we've really answered for an authoritarian context or a Chinese context. That led me to this feeling that we had like the Communist Party's framing of ideology and how they thought about what the public should know. But from a social science point of view, we still had a lot to learn about how it was happening for the citizens. And so I think it was a combination of being in China and talking to people there and then coming back to San Diego and going through the books that really led me to this.
0: Ideology is one of these words where I suspect the, the, the majority of the people who use it in common parlance, if you got 10 people and ask them, what does ideology mean? You'd get you know, 13 different answers. My sense is in, in common parlance, ideology is the equivalent to some sort of dogmatism where you would say someone's being very ideological it's usually something the other side does. It, it, to me, it's similar how our side is patriotic, the other side is nationalist. But there's a, a broader definition of, of ideology, one that transcends the usage in, in normal discourse. I wonder if you can just start by saying, what are we talking about when we talk about I- ideology? Because you use it in, in, in a, a more focused, specific context than, I think, the general discourse.
1: I think that this is especially confusing because, you know, it's not like there's even just one term of art, you know, like different academics um, use it in different ways. For me, I'm coming at it from the point of view of the way it's used in public opinion research, which is this general sense of, do citizens have this order to how they think about things? Do they have a sense of what goes with what? Like, is there a correlation, basically, in their preferences about one policy versus another policy? So you think about people in the U.S., they have millions of potential issues out there, and not all of them get promoted to the sorts of things that we'll actually talk about in politics. But you know, on the face of it, something like abortion and environmental regulation don't really have a lot of consistency. There may be some kinds of basic logical principles, but those can be contradictory at times. What really makes them have this sense of what goes with what is these structures that have been built up over time by politicians, but also by societies that create this pairing, so being pro-life, for example, ends up being associated with having, you know, certain attitude towards tax cuts. And so when we say someone's ideological, at least in public opinion, that means that if you know some of their policy beliefs, then you can very easily predict everything else that they believe. Whereas somebody who is not very ideological, you know, maybe they think something from policy A, but they think something that's unexpected in policy B, and that makes them less coherent or less structured in terms of how they think about things.
0: I just tend to think about Chinese politics and the most helpful thing for me is either comparative, so looking at what's happening in other systems, or I usually go back in some sort of time machine and wonder, would I have been able to make this same statement you know, 700 years ago? And if not, what, what's different? And when you were just talking, I was thinking about what in, let's say, 13th century would have cohered a set of ideological beliefs. And I suppose then it could have been something like the church, Does it always require some sort of authoritative, widely legitimate body or bodies or organization to sort of externally impose ideological difference? So a top-down model of how folks can orient left, right, center on a spectrum, and even indeed, what are the bundle of beliefs or policies which qualify as left, or do we have bottom-up possibilities as well?
1: That's a great question. I think that's something that is very much an open debate in the literature. You know, you think about the terms left and right, they actually date back to the French Revolution based on where the people who wanted more change versus less change sat. Right. You know, there's certainly a lot of work that looks at the top down approach. It's like the political party programs that put, you know, abortion and tax cuts on the same blank, basically, or the same platform that helps create the coherence. But there's also this really interesting political psychology literature that's been out for a while that thinks about the role of genetics, for example, you know, something like your personality, your sensitivity to disgust, even as something that can predict your ideological views. And so, you know, if it really is on some level genetic or, you know, parental socialization or something like that, it would definitely have a partially bottom-up component to it in addition to what the Communist Party or you know, the candidate for president says and how that shapes what people think.
0: I've also always wondered in, in the rise of, of Trump and sort of the shift of the conservative movement in terms of aesthetics, orientation and policies has been interesting to me. I think I would have 10 years ago thought that what defines a, somewhere in the spectrum is a set of policies. And those were the driving forces. So if you believed in in free enterprise, free markets, and let's say the Second Amendment then you were a conservative. I've come to wonder the the extent to which aesthetics and and sort of more tribal identities are driving this. And I think uh, my father doesn't listen to the podcast, so I can say what I want about his politics. But I think it was my old colleague, Will Wilkinson, who described the sort of conservative aesthetic as you're in a lodge with like dark leather chairs and a lot of like exposed wood and a fireplace. And that sort of that aesthetic is what is the orienting point for then what policies you would would or would not take up. So I wonder the extent to which the literature helps think through some of these more sort of aesthetic judgments or opinions and how those are our leaders and policies follow rather than the other way around. And I say this not as a partisan comment, but more just it's been interesting to me to see how the conservative movement has shifted from the set of proposals or ideas that, that I thought were the orienting points, you know, before the Tea Party in sort of 2008 and 2009. And culture plays now a much more important role.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. For a long time, people have pointed out that there are all of these issues out there that also are important in politics, but they aren't something like, what should the marginal tax rate be, for example, right? And scholars have grouped all of these non-ideological dimensions to politics into this bucket that they call valence, basically. Describe valence for us. So valence is basically all of the non-ideological reasons you might prefer a party or a candidate. And typically they involve characteristics, like personal characteristics, like a reputation for honesty, competence. If you describe someone as a straight talker, for example, that's a valence judgment. And typically these are things that actually everyone agrees are good. So Democrats and Republicans both will say they admire honest, competent individuals. And so they don't have like a different policy position on them. They they all say that they're honest or competent. But individual voters will still perceive some kind of difference between parties or candidates. I think when you we think about Trump, you know, I think a lot of the the roots of his appeal are valence oriented and not really ideological, you know, not that he didn't have strongly held beliefs which he's been repeating for a long time, which I think he did. But then when you have people follow along with uh, some of these changes, I think that they're best interpreted as being attracted to his valence, you know, his personality, his celebrity, his style of politics, his aesthetics, as you were saying. And then because we're sort of not used to talking about politics in precisely this way, we sometimes then say that that's, you know, something that conservatives are doing. But I would say, you know, I would say that Trump is not really a conservative person and probably Joe Biden is more conservative and probably Obama was more conservative, actually, when you think about the resistance to change of norms and, you know, things like that. All of these labels do double duty in the U.S., right? They, like, they say something about the intellectual position on policies, but then they also have this like identity component to them. And so it can be really you know, difficult to figure out what's going on.
0: Yeah. And, and for listeners who are wondering if they've tuned into the right podcast, the only reason I, <laughs> I, I dwell on this terrain is, and maybe to make a very clumsy segue to thinking about China, is when I first started getting interested in, in, and actually I would like to unpack this, you know, quote, leftist intellectuals in China, one of the things that struck me was valence and how there was really something quite conservative in aesthetic orientation that, resonated or seemed to overlap pretty significantly with me with conservatives in, in America. Again, I'm not making this as a partisan comment, but the similarities were striking to me. You know, One of them was the leftists in China who were more associated with, with neo-Maoism. The policies were all over the map, but what wasn't all over the map were base aesthetic and tribal judgments about policies that China should pursue, which seemed to me to to be motivated from a sense of masculinity rather than the specifics of the content of the policy. So when they spoke about their respect for Mao Zedong, it was not about in many ways the specific policies that the PRC government was pushing forward, but it was things like standing up to the Soviet Union. It was developing the atomic bomb. It was fighting the United States to a draw. and, and on issues of history there's a very, I think, interesting overlap between how uh, Neo Maoists talk about not slandering the founding father of China and how you see debates in the United States about what is permissible to write about Thomas Jefferson having a child with Sally Hemings, his slave, which created a bit of a contretemps amongst conservatives. So that's the reason I, I was dwelling in that ter- terrain for a bit is I found something, there. there is an interesting overlap in conservative aesthetics and orientation of what we would call the quote, far left in China, and, and now right conservatism in America.
1: I think that that's really well taken. You know? I think that that is totally confounding if we think about ideology from the point of view of the level of government control of the economy. More is left and less is right. If we think about ideology as attitudes towards change, however, then it just sort of depends on what happened before, right? You can be a conservative leftist in China because you're resistant to the sorts of change we've already seen with reform and opening, you know, reactionary in a lot of ways where you want to roll back the clock. And I think that the aesthetic part of this is really fascinating, the way that they maintain these norms about how you're supposed to dress, you know, like, what is Xi Jinping wearing? You know, is he trying to appeal to this sort of more Mao, Mao tradition? Or is he trying to look like a more modern, you know, Western style businessman, political leader, or something like that? That's definitely a big part of it. I mean, a lot of these people are fond of saying that You know, politics is downstream of culture. I think that that's another thing that conservatives in the U.S. and leftists in China would believe. It's part of being consistent, in my view.
0: You know, without further ado, I wanted to to turn to your paper, which I found so important and interesting because, especially as China's political system trends more towards centralization, the Chinese citizen gets marginalized from discussion and debate, both in China and I think outside of China. We begin to use. Xi Jinping as a proxy for the entire country, right? Or we say Beijing. And so I think a lot of people are saying China's not a monolith. But what you're really doing here is helping, I think, really unpack that so that we can understand the country as a collection of, of 1.4 billion individuals rather than sort of what Beijing does or says. So I wanted to give you just some space here. Most folks will not have read the paper. What is the main argument here that, that you're making? And, and how did you make that argument? And what conclusions do you draw from it?
1: So the idea in the paper is to look at the survey data that asks Chinese citizens to identify where they are on the left-right space. You know, if they're a one, they would be on the far left. If they're like a six or a 10 or something like that, they're farther to the right. And then to match that up with their attitudes towards various policy questions. So, you know, whether they think there should be more government involvement in the economy, whether they think that multi-party system is suitable for China, something like that. The data is from uh, two different surveys, one from 1993 and then another from 2002. And the 1993 survey asks about, you know, where people think they are, but also where they think the Communist Party is and where they think the nationalists are, the KMT. So what that lets you do is that lets you sort of figure out what these ideological labels mean to people, you know, people who put themselves on the left, people who put the Communist Party on the left, you know, what other things do they believe? And then you can say, like, this is maybe what the label means. But what I found when writing the paper was really surprising, which is that there is just basically no real, you know, popularly understood consistent meaning to these labels. I think it's, you know, I say surprising in part because those of us who sort of look at China from a distance, but also, you know, intellectuals in China, they commonly refer to different things as left or right, you know, that's their framework of reference. But then for ordinary people, it just doesn't filter through. They're totally inconsistent. And in fact, there are a lot of people, these surveys reveal, you know, who think that communist parties on the far right and the nationalists on the far left. In fact, like most of the people who put themselves on the right in China, looking at the survey evidence shows is that they're actually just confused, like they have it backwards. They are misoriented, because if they put themselves you know, on the right, they're basically actually the same people as the people who put themselves on the left in the sense of like, you know, they have the Communist Party where they are. They have the nationalists as far away from them as possible. And so I think it's really interesting to see that they don't have this sort of shared vocabulary. And I think that's really important, actually, because if you can't orient yourself, organize yourself with respect to other people, then it's much harder for there to be some kind of public voice in politics.
0: As a follow on, I wanted to ask, is this just a feature of authoritarianism in general? Do we see a similar weak ideological labeling or the the phenomenon of ideological spectrum in other systems where I'm just thinking for myself, the orienting points for me to know where I am are of course, as you say, a political party or what TV stations I watch or magazines I read or what newspaper I, I subscribe to and I've got the editorial page to tell me what I should think or it's Rush Limbaugh So I'm trying to imagine a society where those have been eviscerated and you have just the dominant political authority. So is this just a phenomenon of authoritarianism or is there something interesting or unique going on in China?
1: This is a little bit difficult to answer because we don't necessarily have a lot of survey evidence, especially the more authoritarian regimes where they've clamped down harder on civil society and so forth. If you look at newly democratic systems, oftentimes people are completely confused about which end is up. And so they don't have this consensus about left and right. Their parties are fragile, uh, organized just around individual politicians, disband after one election and so forth. I think there's also a regional context here where left and right has a more distinguished pedigree when we think about how it's used in politics in the West. In Japan, it is a meaningful part of politics, but a smaller number of people are willing to sort of describe themselves in a meaningful way in the left-right spectrum. And also, if you look at survey evidence from Taiwan, there's basically very little evidence to show that that's how people organize themselves. Their spectrum is actually about you know, independence versus unification. And so I think it's a combination of regional differences and then also like authoritarian states sort of discourage their citizens from dividing themselves in an organized way.
0: Why don't survey respondents, in terms of at least understanding what is left and what is right, why isn't there just a strong and accurate association with however the party has defined left and right? So I, I could understand their own weak designation to one of the other labels, but in terms of at least knowing which end is up, the party has talked about left and right deviationism for a very long time. Now, granted that definition of what was left and what was right, or or as they like to do with the word left, put it in quotation marks, such that you know it's not authentic leftism. But it would seem to me that wouldn't there just be a strong identification of left and right with whatever the party says at any given time?
1: Yeah, you would think so. I think that that would be something that makes sense, you know, like anti-rightist movement. That tells you about Mao, at least. But the thing is that this kind of language has receded a little bit from official discourse. Um, It was more popular during the Cultural Revolution and afterwards. And also the party has sent a bunch of mixed messages about what is left and what is right. And so you have people saying, for instance, that the Gang of Four was ultra left, but also people saying the Gang of Four was ultra right. And I think that's just led most people in China to get the sense that whatever left and right is, you don't want it to be attached to yourself. And so they may be a little bit reticent to really think about politics in this way, other than you know as a sort of hat that you put on people that you don't like. I would also say that you know, a lot of these intellectual debates are sort of for political hobbyists, people who like to think about these sorts of things. But I think that a lot of the work that these labels would do for you in Western multi-party democracy, you know, you don't have to make that same kind of decision in China, right? If you're trying to figure out who to vote for, your people's Congress election may not be that useful for you, actually, in terms of orientation. And so this combination of like it's not used as much, and it's not as useful in everyday life, I think helps to explain why, for most people, even the more informed parts of our survey audiences, they don't really attach this to individual policies.
0: One of the things that we're talk a lot about in the United States, of course, is the polarization that exists and the, the sort of two separate universes of left and right increasingly. As I was reading your paper, I was thinking... And actually, it may have been one in your previous papers, or maybe one of our discussions last summer, where you said that actually, the more educated you were, the stronger your identification was, or the more, the more you were consistent in an ideological belief. Am I right in that? Or did I just make that up?
1: So it was about political information. It was like how knowledgeable you are if we, if we quiz you about a bunch of things. And it was actually that people were more sort of diffuse, uh, a little bit less consistent. So we think about polarization in the US as like this one liberal conservative spectrum explaining everything that you think. Well, what I found in some other research is that in China, analysts can't do a great job explaining what people think using this one dimension. And it turns out that the more informed somebody is, the poorer this one dimension actually performs in explaining how they answer policy questions. And so in some sense, people who are more informed are actually more likely to be well described by bringing in a second or even a third dimension, like a democratic authoritarian dimension on top of left, right?
0: The question I was going to ask is, from the party's perspective, this weak ideological identification would seem to me to be the optimal outcome, right? I I wouldn't want particularly strong ideological orientations or coherence one way or the other. That just would seem to give me a lot more flexibility as policymakers, because I'm not worried about essentially being flanked to the left. And indeed, that was one of the issues that the party has dealt with since the death of Mao, is this feeling of if we go too far to the quote right on economic policy, for example, there could be a bit of a backlash from some more organized leftists. So if I'm an authoritarian ruler, isn't this the designed outcome that I would like to have?
1: I go back and forth. I mean, I think that the number one outcome would be that everyone agrees with you all the time. Of course, that's like really difficult. Even if they say that they are, you don't know if they're telling the truth. It's really expensive to keep up the pressure to make sure that people do this. And so failing that, I think widespread disorganization or apathy can be helpful to you because it gives you this freedom to maneuver and to change policy, either to be more effective or also just to enrich yourself or your cronies and not have organized interest groups who are watching you like a hawk who are you know, saying like you've betrayed some kind of principle or something like that. But I actually am not sure that Xi Jinping or the Communist Party thinks about it in this way. I think that they're still on the want to get everyone to think the same thing as them. I just think that there's actually a pretty narrow scope of what they think is crucial. The things that we ask about in some of these public opinion surveys about municipal policies or about nationalism or something like that, the party might have some kind of preference, but it doesn't necessarily always have guidance for individuals on what they should believe. I mean, something like nationalism, yes. But something like the minimum wage or housing policy or something like that, not so much. And so in that sense, the degree to which individuals are involved into the political system, I think is actually limited by this sort of separation of a lot of policies from public opinion. And maybe that's also something that explains why it's as disorganized as it is.
0: You know, the, the thrust behind my question, I suppose, is I keep as you were talking, I was just thinking about Dung's quote from the early 90s of we're on guard against the left and the right, but mainly the left. So of course, what that meant is we're done with any sort of ideological debate that's on the left or the right. And so it seems to me to be a comment or at least a, a set of restrictions where the, the outcome that they were looking for is we're just done with any any sort of ideological pull of debate. And we're all in the sort of quiescent middle where we're now accepting that this is this is the road we're on. And no subsequent leader has tried to whip up Popular ideological beliefs. Even Xi Jinping, who seems to talk a lot about ideology, has a very circumscribed view of what that is. And you're right, he doesn't attach the word left or right that much to it. Ideology is in many ways just synonymous now to party strictures rather than a more robust discussion on some orienting values or, or a set of policies that have to do with, let's say, fairness or justice or, or change or status quo
1: that's the luxury of being a dictator. You can occupy the center of the ideological space. A lot of them don't, obviously, because they have other goals that they want to achieve that are far from what the public actually wants. But if you are in this one-party system, then it makes a lot of sense to try to occupy the center of the space. That allows you to describe anyone who is opposed to you as this an extremist, basically. And actually, you know, a lot of the time that actually is what happens because we are talking about valence and ideology earlier. We talk about, like, voting for people based on ideological reasons. The idea is you vote for whoever's closest to you in ideological space. That's a spatial vote, basically, in the sort of jargon of political science. And if you don't really have like organized opposition groups, can't take out a very specific position in the space, then a lot of the competition actually shifts to this valence grounds where the party has this big advantage. Like they have the name recognition advantage, they have the incumbency advantages, they have status quo biases and all of this stuff. They have a reputation for competence that they've built up. It's the devil they know. And that means that anyone who's trying to compete with a party for support, they don't have like a, as clear of a track record to show people. And so often they actually take on some kind of ideological platform and it can't be too similar to the parties because then somebody will just prefer the devil they know. And so these competitor groups, not that they're, they really exist, but if they were to exist to maximize their support, often they're actually incentivized to go pretty far from the center. This is what you see in, in other kinds of authoritarian systems too. It's a great luxury to have, if you're a political party, to be able to define the terms of the debate such that you can sort of hog the center. I think that this only really breaks down when for whatever reason potential opposition figures are allowed to occupy some central space, or if you have a situation like Russia where there are huge valence issues like corruption, where everybody is just mad about them and and then the ruling party takes a hit. But yeah, I think that even if from our perspective, you know, the Communist Party being at the center of some ideological space seems far-fetched. From the perspective of someone in China, that's actually the natural conclusion to draw. And that would be the strategic decision for the party as well.
0: How do we situate the weak ideological identification that many Chinese citizens have with a dominant narrative that exists of ideology returning to China under Xi Jinping? And this gets back to some extent of my question of, of definitions earlier on, are we talking about the same, same word ideology or the same meaning of ideology? But I, I wanted to get your reflections on, as someone who thinks deeply about systems of belief in authoritarian political systems among average citizens, as distinct from a ruling ideology of you know, a small group of political leaders, how do you think about this dominant framing of an increasingly ideological communist party or, or China. What does that mean to you? Or what does it not
1: mean to you when you hear that? I think that for most people, we're engaging with this conversation on the CCP's grounds, basically. They say that this is what ideology is. And we say, okay, you're talking about this more, you're promoting this more as a way to keep the party together and disciplined. And so we'll describe this, you know, even like US-China competition as an ideological competition. But From the sort of social science, public opinion side of things, I would say that they have a long way to go before they have this really ideological public space. You know, maybe they had it in the Cultural Revolution, but most of that's been drained away. And even if Xi Jinping wants to make the Communist Party a more ideological place, there's very little evidence that he actually wants the public to be more coherent and organized. Because, you know, I think that that's actually really dangerous. In the process of creating like a really unified set of beliefs, you also create the antithesis. And so I think it's a lot safer for them to just say, you know, ideology means following this legitimizing narrative about what the party is and why it deserves to rule, and then leaving all of these fine print policy differences out of it. I think that that's a lot safer. That gives you more flexibility with managing governing issues. And I think that that's what they're going to do, even though they may rely more on this sort of Mao era playbook of rallying and organizing the park.
0: Final question, which I'd like you to fight your instinct to say, I don't know. But (laughs) one of the frustrating features of Discourse on China, which I put most of the blame on the CCP for how it frames or infantilizes Chinese citizens, is often, you know, someone who works on China is asked, well, what what do the Chinese people think about X? And I always say, I have no idea anymore that I'm from a small state, Vermont. If you ask me what do Vermonters think about issue X, I would say, I have no idea. But I wanted to ask you if. Based on the survey results you've seen, and marinating in some of the issues that there's identification with, some of the policies there's identification with. If there was a, a vote tomorrow in China that could reflect the pure democratic preference of the Chinese people, what type of leader in terms of policy orientation would be elected? sort of centrist right, centrist left, extreme left, extreme right, on our own terms of spectrum so that we can make a reasonable or understandable statement?
1: Yeah, that's that's the big question, isn't it? If the vote is tomorrow, I think they vote for someone they know, someone who is, I mean, if Xi Jinping is running, I assume he would win, but somebody who can claim this sort of lineage. I think if the vote is in a year, and they're allowed to have open debate in the meantime, then you get to a really different place or even, you know, probably longer than. Any. But coordinating on different policy position that's separate from what is in many ways a pretty successful run from a governing point of view for the CCP, I think that's really difficult. I think that's an argument that people need to make in public. And I think that it has an unpredictable course if it ever takes place, which is, you know, why the party doesn't want to go down that road. But I mean, if you look at other countries that have this sort of legacy of a uh, developmental state, like Singapore, like People, People's Action Party is still doing pretty well in these elections. They're mostly reasonably administered. They still have kind of unfair rules about criticizing government and so forth. I think that most contexts that have this kind of per- performance legitimacy, you would start out with a uh, strong status quo bias in, in the public.
0: I remember Mao sure, who's the You know, octogenarian, I guess, rightist. We would call him uh, in China. Said, you know, if given a free vote, that China would elect in a pretty hardcore nationalist interventionist into office. And I think that's the as I was as you were talking, I was just thinking, what would the substance or style of a candidate be who would be able to come into office? And I was thinking, just the notes I was writing down were certainly a continuation of. Sort of a historical narrative nationalist who I think very much keeps with the China dream theme of a country rising, a country facing external challenges that must you know unify and band together. I was thinking of when you said sort of other East Asian development states, I was thinking undoubtedly a heavily interventionist equity-minded but interventionist government, I doubt there would be much support for more robust market reforms or or market allocation of resources. So I think a pretty interventionist, redistributionist state would make sense. But aside from that, I mean, I think this this is a really fascinating question that I would like to understand more, because one of the features, again, of discussion now is when people are projecting that Xi Jinping rules for the next 780 years to me, I just think one day she will be gone, and, I, and I'm sure in the future, one day, there will be more autonomy for decision making amongst the Chinese public. And I just don't think we have a good understanding of what type of country China would be if given more, I don't want to call it democratic autonomy, but certainly autonomy to reflect the policy preferences or orientations of, of the Chinese people.
1: Yeah, I mean, the people who would vote are people who have been socialized, educated under the party. You see in a lot of these places that have emerged from communism, there's actually a lot of authoritarian nostalgia in public opinion. In places like South Korea, you have this. That would be a powerful force, I think, if it was a more autonomous situation. You know, maybe the first stage would be like what happened with Tiananmen Square and Let's Settle scores and try to rehabilitate some people and try to purge some other people. But I think that after that settles, you know, there would be this group of people who went through patriotic education who have these common idiom for how to think about politics. And they may not land in that different of a place for a lot of things, because this is just normal. Coming up to something that's completely different, I think, is is very costly. It's a coordination problem, and it takes time. If China does become more democratic someday, it may not be very smooth sailing, at least at the start.
0: Well, on that rosy note, Jason, I wanted to thank you again for, for your time today and for just the really fascinating research you're doing on this issue of citizen ideology in China. I hope there's a lot more of uh, this work in the future. So thank you very much for your time and I, I really enjoyed the discussion.
1: Thanks, Jude. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard.